Hold the Line with Mike Solon is brought to you by the Seattle Police Officers Guild, Seattle's public safety voice. Hey, welcome back to Hold the Line with Mike Solon. Today, I got a very special guest, as all guests are special, but this one in particular for me, because it's been a while since we've put a podcast together, is somebody who's got buy-in to the city of Seattle and I think the state of Washington, a local person, and I think his resume goes, geez, I mean, I think it compares to the the best intellectuals out there. Um, He's an expert, in my opinion, to just the police conversation, public safety conversation. We're going to break down his resume and particularly one house bill that we're finding in Olympia that is extremely problematic for communities across the state. So buckle up. We've got Bob Scales from Police Strategies sitting right next to me. The line must be drawn here. This far, no farther. This is where we hold them. This is where we fight! We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish. Not a fight. So, Bob Scales, thanks for being here. Um, I got a lot of respect for you. We've been communicating on and off for a few years since 2020. And I've seen your face come and go at HQ before I took this presidency. So, you look familiar. And I've always wanted to advance our conversation because you're an absolute brain and you're level-headed and reasonable, but I want to let the people know just who you are. If you don't mind, I'm going to read your resume because it's damn impressive. So Bob is the current CEO of Police Strategies LLC, and we'll break down what Police Strategy is. I'll let you do that, but just here is Bob's resume. So Not only is the CEO of Police Strategies, but he was the compliance coordinator with the Seattle Police Department for over a year, almost two years. He was a city council member of the city of Bainbridge Island and mayor of that city. Awesome place to live. They're lucky to have you. He was the compliance attorney for Microsoft for a while. He worked for the city of Seattle for over 12 years, where he was the director of government affairs at the city attorney's office. He was a senior policy analyst for Mayor Greg Nichols at the time, assistant director for public safety for Mayor Paul Schell. I mentioned he was already a city council member of the city of Bainbridge Island before he became mayor. He was a disciplinary hearing officer for the Washington State Bar Association. He was a special assistant United States attorney. United States Attorney's Office. He was a Deputy Prosecuting Attorney, Rule 9 Staff Attorney for the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project. Pretty cool. He was an intern in Washington State Attorney General's Office, University of Washington. He was a Course Development Officer, University of Surrey. Is that Surrey in the province of Ontario? No, UK. UK? Yeah. Really? Is Surrey in the province of Ontario? No, it might be British Columbia. I think there's a a Surrey is a city or a region in British Columbia. Well, I got to take a water break reading all your resume here. (laughs) You're going way back. Well, (laughs) people need to know who the hell you are. This is impressive. English teacher is at Geelin College of Geology? Geelin. Geelin, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, And he was a National Institute of Health Research Associate. I mean, is there anything you haven't done, Bob? I've I've gotten around, yeah. (laughs) Well, hey, man, I, you know, it's, 
anytime I can have somebody in studio talking about public safety, I think it's our lane to, to, to bring that up. I mean, you're obviously you're well-versed in, 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 in the history of you and your resume is impressive. So talk to me about Bob scales relative to your resume. Like, why do you do what you do and just maybe give the audience some more insight other than me just reading off your resume? Sure. Well, one of the common themes through everything I've done is data. I've always liked data. Uh, even when I was a little kid, I would be drawing graphs and charts and things. And so no matter what my job is, I try to incorporate data into it. So for example, when I was a King County prosecutor, uh, we got a grant, uh, DOJ grant to have a vertical prosecution program for juvenile firearm offenders. And so I, I was assigned to do that project. And I said, well, I'm going to collect some data on this. And so I collected a lot of data, did analysis, did a report, gave it to DOJ, and they, they loved it. I mean, they never see. We actually showed that how, how um, much more effective it was to have a vertical prosecution program. And then we also had a program uh, to prosecute armed career criminals in federal court from state court because the sentence was much longer. Um, so I did a data project on that. And then when I moved to the city of Seattle in the mayor's office as a pol- uh, public safety policy advisor, I used, I used data for everything. And I was involved in pretty much every public safety issue from raves to homeless encampments to open air drug markets to gun violence prevention, you name it. And data was always a key component of that. And um, so I was sort of dismayed when the Department of Justice came in in 2011 and did a pattern practice investigation of the Seattle Police Department. And I was in the city attorney's office and represented the city in that investigation and subsequent uh, consent decree negotiations. And the DOJ came out with a number and said, well, 20% of your uses of force are unconstitutional. And we said, that's, that's not possible. You know, we, we review every single use of force incident, less than 2% are our policy, and there's no way that 20% are unconstitutional. And so I said, you know, show me the data. Show me, show me, you know, you did this analysis, you got sure. all these records from us, they wouldn't show us the data. And we said, well, show us, show us a case. Show us show some, some of these cases that you say are unconstitutional. We won't show you the cases. And they said, you just have to trust us. And, and the only solution to this problem is a consent decree, uh, which uh, I argued against. But politically, you know, the, the city council and the city attorney were all in favor of the consent decree. And the mayor eventually had to give in um, and sign it. And you know the results. <laughs> yeah, you know the results. So let's just, let's just stop you there and sure. just target that so I don't, you know, we don't misstep here. So uh, 2011 DOJ kind of comes in and starts sniffing around because I think Seattle had a few high profile, you know, incidents. Yeah, you had the John D. Williams shooting and mm-hmm. that was sort of that period of time was when cell phone cameras were, were getting going. And oh, yeah. so you had a lot of individual incidents that weren't that serious, but they were because they were on TV, they were, they were high captured. profile. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and then um, to your point, DOJ says, hey, 20% of the time, pattern and practice of bias policing and use of force problems, correct? Yeah, they Based said, upon their data. That yeah, they, they said specifically they that 20%, they looked at two and a half years of use of force, about 1,200 incidents, and they said that 20% of those were unconstitutional and either unnecessary or excessive. And so you challenge them to a degree because that's part of your job, right, is to, okay, because you know the cost. Because if they come in, it's going to cost the city a ton of money. Right. Okay. So you challenge them. And when you challenge them, that has to be done in federal court, correct? Like if it, So if, if you go to the federal court and you basically say, DOJ, please show us 
your 20% statistics, which justify taking over the city. Is that, is, that the, is that the path? Well, see, this is the problem. And what most people don't understand about consent decrees is that they're, they're simply contracts. They're, they're voluntary contracts that cities sign with the Department of Justice that basically gives a federal judge and a monitor control of the local police department. They're not court-imposed they're, okay. they're, they're voluntary. And so there's only been one um, jurisdiction that's ever forced the DOJ to go to court, and that's the Alamance County Sheriff in North Carolina. And they found a pattern of practice of biased policing, and they said, you have to enter a consent decree. And the sheriff said no. And so they had to take him to court, and they had to prove by preponderance of the evidence that there was a pattern of practice, and they failed. They the, failed. The DOJ, and, the, and there's a 250-page district court opinion it just talks about how DOJ had nothing. You know, they were trying to get a consent decree imposed. Sure. So the DOJ appealed it, and then during the appeal, they worked out a deal with the sheriff, and they said, well, you promised to do these things? And the sheriff said, sure, I'll promise to do those things. And they mm-hmm. signed a, an MOA, and then they dropped the appeal. So there's no other jurisdiction that's ever challenged the DOJ's findings. Oh, okay, that's great knowledge. I did not know that. Um, so the only time you want to challenge that, is it, is it federal court, or is it like the local jurisdiction yeah, like so, superior, like Supreme Court or something. No, it'd be it'd be federal court. So, so there there there's a uh, a federal statute that was passed in 1994, uh, 42 USC 14141, that gives the Department of Justice the authority to conduct pattern or practice investigations of local law enforcement gotcha. agencies. So, you would have to go to a federal judge and have a trial where they would present their experts and their data to show that there was, a, in fact, a pattern, pattern of practice. practice. But, and also, there's no definition of what a pattern practice is. A pattern practice is whatever the DOJ says it is. Okay, is there a difference between, uh, like the city of Seattle, my understanding of it, and I could be wrong, I want you to correct me, it was a voluntary settlement agreement, meaning a contract with them, for them to take us over, versus DOJ coming into the city and saying, we're taking you over, which would be the more coined use of a consent decree, correct? Right. So, so they're really every single consent decree or MOA is a settlement agreement. Got it. So it's something that is voluntarily signed, usually by the mayor or the city manager and DOJ. And then the court, the federal judge and the independent monitor that's paid for by the city mm-hmm. oversee that contract Got it. and make sure that everybody's in compliance. Okay. So then you have the monitor, correct, is being paid by the city. But then when does the uh, the federal judge, if you will, in this case, our case, it's Judge Robart, right. how does he get into this uh, conversation? So once the, once the consent decree is signed, then it goes before the judge. And you have um, the consent decree, and then you usually have some kind of compliance uh, monitoring plan. And then the judge will approve that, and then there'll be regular, the monitor will do regular status updates, quarterly or annual or something. And then they'll go before the judge, and then they'll say, okay, you're in compliance on these things, you're not in compliance on those things. And then usually there's a period of time, once you're in full and effective compliance, and that's up to the judge, uh, then you have a two-year like probationary period where you have to stay in compliance. Um, and the way things are going now is that the average consent decree lasts 11 and a half years, and the longest consent decree is in Virgin Islands, and that's 19 years. 19 years. So they're never-ending, and they cost hundreds of millions of dollars. With no, the other thing is that the never, no one's ever evaluated. Um, the Meaning, effect. there's no audit, if you will, like a better way of saying it, of the monitoring team in terms of how much money is put into it. Is that, is that what you're well, referring to? Well, the, 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 the big problem is, is that compliance is just whatever 
the monitor and the judge say it is. But the goal of a consent decree is to eliminate a pattern of practice. So they go into it saying you have a pattern of practice, but compliance is just doing what they tell you to do. Mm. So no one is looking at it to say, okay, at the end of this, you know, it should be lifted whenever you don't have a pattern of practice anymore. Yeah. Because that's why you went into it. But that's never happened. No one's ever evaluated a consent decree to say, oh, this was successful. You know, now you don't have a pattern of practice because there's no data to begin with. Got it. And so um, I've talked about the settlement agreement. I call it a settlement agreement um, a few times on this podcast where, and I always go back to more, it's more of just a talking point for me, but but I think it's so true. It's in 2020, just before Floyd, um, I think it was about a week that the mayor and uh, DOJ were announcing the termination of the settlement agreement, right? They signed paper. Mm-hmm. It was going to go in front of the federal judge, Judge Robart. But then obviously Floyd's happens and then they pull that. And then here we are three years later and counting. We're still there. Um, and they're obviously analyzing our force during the riots and whatnot, which I think is, you know, it's sound to do that, right? Because we're still under settlement agreement. Um, and so to your point about analyzing that, I mean, they boasted that we got into full effect of compliance in a record amount of time, others to emulate it. So um, it's interesting that it's a contractual um, agreement that is, I think, once it's terminated, that means the DOJ and the city agree to terminate the contract. But there are some some benchmarks that still need to be we still need to be monitored to a degree, correct? Like accountability conversation? Yeah, but again, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, the, the thing to bear in mind with consent decrees is that they are 100% political. There's no data. There's no, there's no factual basis for any single consent decree. They're all just emotional and political mm. uh, documents. And so, so the, it, it's, it's hard to get out of a consent decree because you have no objective measures. It's not like you can do a number of things and then say, okay, we've, we've successfully improved and now we can get out of the consent decree. The goalposts are always moving. And so, so the judge and the monitor can, can do whatever they want. Once the, once the agreement's signed, you're handing over management and control of the law enforcement to Understood. them. And they don't have any, there's no objective metrics. Nobody can point to something and say, oh, you know, you're, you're doing well in this area. It's all up to. So how do we, you know, money, well, I'll talk, it's at least over a hundred million dollars, the city of Seattle. Oh, absolutely. And and at least. And when we, when we, when we were negotiating with DOJ in 2012 on the consent decree, the budget office did an estimate. Uh, At that time, we thought it would last five years. And the budget office did an estimate of $60 million. And DOJ a gasket they're just like there's no way it will cost that much no no you can't say that and they thought we were trying to sabotage the negotiations and everything and turns out it's been more than twice as long and cost twice as much as what we estimated at that time it's incredible and there's no there's no there's no major city consent decree that's less than 100 million i mean you've got a million dollars a year i mean chicago's paying three and a half million for their monitor every year so i mean does this go to the pockets of the people that are doing the monitoring oh it's a it's a racket it's 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 a total racket, and even the the government accounting office um, did a study uh, at the end of uh, 2021, and basically uh, they said that it's a racket, and that and that monitors monitors have no oversight, no supervision, they're not term limited, and so so they only get paid 
if they're continued to be the monitor. So their job is to determine if there's compliance, but there's a disincentive to find compliance. And that's why the monitor will always find something wrong. It's so an open checkbook. Their, it's an open yeah, checkbook. Yeah. I mean, that, that's stunning it revelation. Is. And that, not that many people know about that, right? They just think DOJ is going to come in here exactly. and then fix, an, fix an agency. Everybody thinks the DOJ Civil Rights Division wears the white hat and they've got all the answers and that their hearts are in the right place. And, but it's all political. And if you look at um, the, the uh, National Policing uh, Institute just did a, a, a great uh, analysis of, of the history of consent decrees. And if you look at the... There were four consent decrees imposed in the Clinton administration, mm-hmm. two in the Bush administration, uh, 15 in the Obama administration. 15. Zero, including Seattle, zero in the Trump administration, one so far in the Biden administration, but they have 10 pending investigations. So they're, they're on track to beat the Obama administration. So whomever is in power, Democrat or Republican, at the national conversation in D.C. determines the DOJ consent decree settlement agreement rollout. So it has, it has nothing to do with police reform at all. It has, it has to do with politics. And that's why, that's why you, you'll, you'll have, I mean, Memphis for sure is going to get a consent decree, oh, whether absolutely. they need it or not. Yeah. Same thing with Minneapolis and Louisville. They all had high profile incidents. They're all going to get consent decrees and, and none of them are going to be based on facts. So, I mean, we'll briefly talk on, touch on this cause we got a lot to cover here. I mean, it's, you can, we could have a podcast just on the consent decree we, we, alone. It, it goes on and on. <laughs> <laughs> but l- l- maybe for a f- just a few more minutes, like why is it, do you think, that depending upon which political parties and national control, why do why is there such a disparaging number of settlement agreements, consent agrees with the Democrat Party versus the Republican Party? Well, the 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 um the Democrats obviously are more beholden to the anti police activists. And so, so there's there's a desire uh, from one party to be more sort of seen as police accountability mm-hmm. and police reform, and you know there are efforts made at the federal level, such as the George Floyd Act, to to produce federal le- regulations. But we're talking about local law enforcement, um, and one of the interesting points is that DOJ has never done a pattern of practice investigation of any federal law enforcement agency. It's only state and local, even though they could. So Customs and Border Patrol has never been investigated. So they don't, they don't worry about their own agencies. They're only worried about uh, state and local. So there's a whole federalism issue going on and, and, and other things. But, but ultimately, I think it is that, that you're just trying to appease um, different advocacy groups. And, and the easiest way to do that is to do a high-profile investigation by your civil rights division into a local law enforcement agency, and you get a lot of political points for yeah, that. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I think it ties into my conversation with Thomas Villarreal in uh, Austin Police Association, their president. We just talked earlier. And it, it would appear so in both cities. And I'll just speak, because I really don't want to speak for Austin. I just briefly interviewed him. But in Seattle, it appears as if the activist groups, to your talking further to your point, seem to control the political narrative when it comes to public safety and particularly policing. But I would like to explore, look at data. Do those activists, are they a true reflection of Seattle's constituents? How many of Seattleites align with them or allow them to speak on their behalf. If, if you kind of understand what I'm saying, it just seems like the small group of activists, very loud, 
seem to drive the public safety political discourse more often than not than the average citizen out there in Seattle who just wants to go about their daily lives, want a cop when they call for a cop, um, want a police report when they need it, and just feel secure in their homes and keep their families safe and just go about their business, at least from the outside looking in being a cop here for 23 years. Now, my, my experience, particularly working in the mayor's office, is that most people don't want to think about public safety. Most people don't want to worry about public safety. And so it was really hard for me in the mayor's office to try to create, you know, these meetings with the police with, for community engagement. Because if you just set up a meeting and say, hey, come meet your local precinct commander and mm-hmm. let's talk about public safety issues, nobody shows up. But whenever there's a high-profile shooting or there's some you know, high-profile incident or problem, then you get all the activists get engaged. And so it's, it tends to be a one-sided, one-way, one-issue conversation, which is how bad the police are. And then most people are just like, just... They just, don't want to deal keep, with it. Just keep me safe, right? Just call, you know, respond when well, I call. and <laughs> it, That plays itself out in public comment in the city council meetings. I don't know what it was at the city of Bainbridge Island, but, I, you know, did you have many activists calling into public comment? Uh, uh, there were, there are always, every city that, I, and I, I work with more than 100 agencies across the country, every city has a group of, of anti-police activists, every, mm-hmm. everyone. And some are smaller, some are, some are larger, but everybody's got them. But they end up influencing. Oh, absolutely! Millions of dollars. Oh, a- absolutely! They have, and, and this is what's happening in Olympia now with the Washington Coalition for Police Accountability has immense influence, and the legislature is only listening to them and ignoring even their own state agencies that have data. Uh, and so, so what's happened with George Floyd and and Memphis is that it's just given these activist groups so much more power and influence, and then different elected officials are taking advantage of that and trying to further their own careers. Well, and I think the result of that is as sad as that is, because it very, it seems very singular based, more so ideologically based for a specific purpose to further their activist agenda. And I think it's probably detrimental as it plays out to the communities across the state, particularly here in Seattle, now impacting Olympia that everybody's public safety is uh, being impacted by those activist decisions, which is influencing political decisions. Well, and w- what, what really gets me as well is that, you know, I know from working in public safety for the last 30 years that, you know, there are plenty of problems in the criminal justice system. Um, whether you're talking about police or your prosecutors or your courts or your probation officers, defense, there's plenty of problems that we could be working on. Um, but, because of how the whole conversation has evolved and who has the power now, we're focusing on issues that are literally counterproductive to public safety. And so you are, uh, instead of fixing the problems in policing, you're simply hampering the police and not allowing them to do their job and creating a work environment that makes everyone less safe in the name of reform instead of addressing the actual problems that exist, and those get ignored. So it's just making everything worse. And so the way you address that in your company, Police Strategies, is you analyze the data, which then can form a reasonable narrative or talking points explaining the whole reform conversation. Yeah, and correct. And we, exactly. And so we focus a lot on use of force data, and we provide a lot of data to the public about use of force, and it's never what people think it is of course going not. to be. Of course and, not. And, and, because you know, I think, I'm going to cut you off, yeah. but... Um, I just think people out there think that cops are just killing people. Exactly. And that, and that, that cops are just predict- killing more you know, persons of color. But we got to analyze the crime stats, all that stuff, right? 
And, and, and that's what we've, we've found is that, you know, you're, you're, what, what's interesting about the data is, is that, you know, there are about 10 million arrests a year. Um, 96% of those arrests don't involve any use of force. And the 4% where you have use of force, less than 2% of that 4%, the officers are doing something wrong. Either they're out of less policy. Less than 2%. Of 4%. So, we're, so we're talking about broadly across America, millions of yeah, contacts yeah, a year. Yeah, millions. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and so, so, we're, so yes, there are problems. And yes, there are terrible incidents like Memphis and, and, and Minneapolis. But those are so extremely rare. Yeah. And, and we should focus on those. We should focus on why did that happen. In Memphis, it seems to me the obvious reason for this problem is that two of the five officers who were charged had criminal histories criminal before histories, they were hired. The background, and that's my concern. Yeah. So we'll get into the yeah. whole defunding conversation, its impact on public safety that ties into the Memphis catastrophe. Okay, so you're really knocking out of the park here. Uh, defun- defunding political move again political wind shift and our elected leaders will pivot activist groups. And George Floyd thing was an outrage an outrage to the point where the optics of the officer alone, let's, let's just take race out of, out of it just for a second. The optics of a police officer putting their knee on somebody like that. When you have a crowd filming you to your point, 2011 cell phone cameras start coming out, you know, you're being recorded and you're doing it for over five minutes, close to damn near 10 minutes long. And you don't connect the obvious dots to like, maybe I should pivot here. That to me is stunning just as a professional police officer. Then obviously I think people insert the race conversation into it because it's obvious, you know, they have a black you know, victim on the ground, a white officer with a knee on the neck. When you talk about the profession historically years ago where they were infusing race and there were some problems, right? But when we talk about Seattle specifically, and this is a fantastic agency, our background of trying to get our backgrounding, I should say, of trying to really get a quali- quality human being to come to be the police officer, I think is second to none. But this defunding move, which was political in nature, post-George Floyd, has done so much damage, not only just, just to this city, but the profession of law enforcement, that it sweeps across the nation. I think Seattle, along with Minneapolis, led the way. And now we look at Austin, what's happening there, Los Angeles, all these major cities. It's correlation to Memphis, where you're struggling to find qualified human beings to be police officers, put people in a uniform to serve, when the backgrounding of these individuals, simple background checks, is not even done. Or they, they, they literally got exemptions because two of these officers had criminal histories. They, the, the department got an exemption so they could hire them from the state. And, and so, and what, what really frustrates me more than, yeah, more than anything else is that literally we all want the same thing. Sure. The police, the activists, the legislators, the community, we all want constitutional, professional, effective policing. Everybody wants the same thing. There's nobody that's... Nobody in law enforcement would ever look at what happened in Memphis and say, that's okay. I've never met a police chief who said, yeah, I encourage my officers to racially profile. Right. I mean, I mean, there we're arguing about we're, we're, we're really literally all want the same thing. And yet the argument is about how do we get there? And, and the policing argument is, okay, we need, we need uh, better training. We need better supervision. We need better equipment. 
um, and and we need to hire better quality candidates. And and the opposite end of that is that you know you just need to go away. We need less of you, right? We need less enforcement. Uh, and 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 the fewer officers and the fewer arrests that are made, the fewer problems we will have. So so you're viewed as the problem. Uh, as opposed to you know the actual problem, which is which is so small and minuscule compared to what you're being portrayed as. Hundred percent, two percent of context is what we're really fighting about. Yeah, you're two percent, two percent, less than two percent of use of force are, are found to be out of policy, and that's pretty much across the board. But, and you're never going to get to a hundred percent. And just like you're never going, the only way that you're going to get to like people just want the police to stop shooting, stop shooting people, stop using force against no people. No cop that I know wants to shoot anybody. Well, exactly. But the only way that you're going to get there is to stop making arrests and stop enforcing the law because nobody looks at, everybody wants to look at what the police do. Nobody looks at what the suspect does. And that's what, what our data focuses on is, yes, what does the police officer do? But more importantly, why did the police officer do that? And there's, there yeah. has to be Legally, I mean, if, if the I would say absolutely, if the police were just going around randomly shooting people and beating people up, that would be a big It'd be problem, a problem, right? And 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 but that's not what's happening. What's happening is is that you have suspects who are armed, who are threatening the police, who are assaulting the police, or assaulting others, and they're the ones that are having force used against them. And if it's de- a deadly force situation, they're the ones that are being shot at and killed. Hundred percent. So let's go into then. I think it's a good transition to go into your company, police strategies, where you. Look at the data, which I think really breaks down the reasonableness of this conversation, the reality. So you want to just expand on like, what does the company do and how effective is it in terms of getting the national conversation going? Sure. Well, we, you know, I started the company, I, I, I got, I got pretty disillusioned with, <laughs> with government and particularly federal government from the consent decree. And I, I didn't really want to work in that environment, um, even though I'd had a prior great history with DOJ. I used to work for the U.S. Attorney's Office, but I just had enough. And so I, I formed police strategies with some former um, uh, colleagues from SPD, yeah. Catherine Olson, who used to he- be the head of the Office of Professional Accountability, and Assistant Chief Mike Sanford. Um, and we also have a very close partnership with the uh, Seattle University and their criminal justice department. Yeah, so let's break that down real quick. So you've got yourself and um, Catherine Olson partner in this. So Catherine served as the EEOC attorney and the director of the Office of Professional Accountability. Then at the time, now it's police accountability. For the Seattle Police Department, she is president of the National Association for Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement, NACOL. And then obviously, former Chief Mike Stanford of SPD, over 30 years experience. And then Jan Poor, is that how you pronounce her name? Jane Poor. Jane Poor. My apologies. Uh, Master's degree in criminal justice reform, Seattle University, local. Regional Data Collection Consultant for the Measures of for Justice. That's pretty cool. She has conducted extensive research on electronic control devices. So sorry to interrupt, but no, go ahead. Sure, sure. So so we, we formed our, our company in 2015, and basically we wanted to take the lessons learned from the Seattle Consent Decree. And the main lesson we learned was that nobody knows anything about use of force because there's no data. And I think I'm pretty sure that if we had good data system on use of force back in 2011 you wouldn't have a consent decree right now because we could have we could have but then bob you'd be taking millions of dollars out of people's pockets (laughs) so you're enemy number one but (laughs) only only the the handful of monitors who are you know doing their thing but uh, most people i think would have appreciated having more money for for social services and and please support that so keep going um, so, so what we did was we, we developed a system. We said, all right, let's, let's look at if we were going to analyze, if we were going to collect data on use of force, what data elements would we want to collect? And so the usual things, you know, uh, 
time, place, uh, date, you know, location. Um, but lots of information on the officers, um, their demographic experience, rank, et cetera, assignment, and then lots of information on suspects. So demographics, age, race, and gender, height and weight. But more importantly, what was their behavior? And what, what, what were the full circumstances before, during, and after the use of force? What were the dynamics between the officer and the subject during the use of force? What happened after the use of force? Any injuries? So we collect up to 150 different data variables on each use of force incident. The problem is, is that there is no electronic database and no records management system out there that collects all this information. Mm-hmm. So, so we have partnerships with a number of different companies where we can get some of the data uh, up to maybe 30% of the data we collect. But we get almost all of our data from the officer's narrative statements. And so every officer who used force knows that they've got to justify it, and they've got to detail everything from start to finish. So all the, all the information is there, but it's in a narrative report. So, so the, the bulk of what we do is review these reports and extract the data based on our coding system and then once we have the data extracted, we've developed different algorithms that look at the use of force based on the Graham v. Connor standard, which is the U.S. Supreme Court case by which all use of, it's the floor by which all use of force is judged. And so we have a justification score that's based on the four Graham factors, the severity of the crime, the threat to the officer, others, the level of resistance and whether the suspect fled. And then we have a, a force factor score, which is proportionality of force to resistance to see if it's potentially excessive. So our system doesn't replace an individual review of each use of force incident, which the department's going to do and determine if it's in or out of policy. What our system enables an agency to do is to look at all the, all the uses of force over multiple years, all the officers involved, and then compare their use of force practices with other officers and with other agencies. So even though 98% of your use of force is going to be within policy, within that group, there's a huge range in how and why officers use force. And so there may be some officers that are like, well, we'd rather have these officers, you know, maybe do a little more de-escalation or maybe not use force so early. Um, but what we're actually finding is that one of one of the main findings, I mean, we have a lot of different findings, and we've done a number of peer-reviewed journal articles with Seattle University and some other universities. But one of our our our, our key findings is that um, the 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 intense scrutiny on officers, whether it's a consent decree or media or, 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 or regulation, you know, causes officers to, to pull back and to disengage. Absolutely. And, but we've also found that with use of force. And so we found in recent years, because they're hesitant to go hands on. No, the opposite, the opposite. Yeah. Okay. So, so they're hesitant to, to use intermediate weapons. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. So, okay. so, so when, when the taser might be the, the most, Advantageous. advantageous and, and yeah. effective initial use of force tactic. Officers are hesitant to use their weapons, and so they tend to go hands-on earlier on and try to try to resolve it. And if uh, they don't have the physical skills to do so, the, it goes or the, south. Or if the subject's big and strong, then they, they, it goes worse. Mm-hmm. And the, the use of force goes on longer. Usually the officer and the subject end up getting hurt. Usually they end up having to use intermediate weapons later, whereas in earlier years, we saw a lot more use of intermediate weapons early on. You still had a very low injury rate and no serious injuries, but now we're seeing sort of a shift to, well, and also with all the state regulations, I mean, use of force has just plummeted because officers are unable to be proactive and to make lots of arrests and unable to pursue, et cetera. Due to the restrictions, regulations. Right, so you have, you have fewer uses of force, but the uses of force that are being used, it's more likely that people are getting injured because officers are reluctant to use yeah. the appropriate uh, weapon. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so 
given all those constraints is that how does that impact the reasonable officer out there that just wants to serve professionally, that has the skill set, the acumen to do the job, um, known more by their peers, and I think the community of being proactive and caring. How does that reality impact them when it comes to how they police the community that they work in? Well, one of the things that we, we don't do is we don't, we don't tell agencies what they should or shouldn't do. Our, our goal is to provide them with the data and then let them make their own decisions for policies and training. And so what agencies generally do is when they see the data, particularly, you know, uh, 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 a number of agencies in, because Washington State, we've seen regional differences in uses of force. So Washington mm-hmm. State's heavy reliance on tasers. In California, there's more of a reliance on physical strikes and batons. Um, Wisconsin's the other state. We have a lot of agencies, and they almost never use any weapons. It's almost all physical force, and they do a lot of martial arts training and that Mm. kind of thing. Um, But one of the things that we found in Washington is in recent years, there's been a move away from from tasers, um, but we're getting into pepper balls are becoming more more, uh, used. So more distance away from... Yeah, more projectile weapons. And so so when, when agencies are able to see the data and they're able to see, oh, these officers are using these tactics and they're incredibly effective, yeah. low injury rates. Um, and, and we've actually had agencies that have told their officers or, or retrained their officers and say, look, you need to, you know, everybody's got a taser, right? It's okay to use it in the right circumstance because officers were just, okay, I shouldn't use my taser because it, it might, you know, create a problem. Mm. And, and, you know, taser's not right for every situation, but, you know, it's, it's an option that you have. And if you have it, you should use it when it's appropriate. And so, so, so there's been a lot of that going on. And then also looking at, because we're not just looking at bad things, we're also looking at good things. And so they're able to identify officers that really use force effectively and, and with low injury rates to themselves and the subjects. And so some of these officers are, are used in training um, uh, and, and, and some of the best uses of force that we see in the data happen to be officers that are, that are doing the training. Um, so you can really see how, tra- how important for training sure. is. For sure. And so, but with all this scrutiny now, um, it's led to de-policing if to a degree because of, you know, the officers are seeing a political problem for themselves. So then those, how does the data flag an officer who would appear to do more for us because of them, they do more statements, they're actually engaging more. How does that impact them? Yeah, so well, that's, that's how our system is different than like an early warning system. Because an early warning system, uh, which I'm not, I'm, I, I, which exists here. Yeah, most every consent decree is going to require that an agency implement an early warning system. Many, many agencies now have them. They're all based on frequency. So they'll count how many complaints did you have in the last six months? How many uses of force did you have? You know, how many times were you late to work? Or, but it's just counting things. Sure. And so with use of force, what we found is that officers that use force more frequently are the ones that are making more arrests because arrests or use of force are directly linked to arrests. And officers who make more arrests are generally on patrol. And the ones on patrol making lots of arrests are your proactive officers that are out there doing their jobs and making arrests. Um, and they're, they, so they have naturally more uses of force. Um, when you compare those officers with an officer who might not be as proactive or maybe they're on you know, desk duty and they don't do very much out in the field, uh, when you look at their uses of force, even though it's much less frequent, when you look at, at the, the force justification scores and the force factor scores, it's the officers that use force more frequently that tend to use force more appropriately. 
And so in an early warning system, you're just flagging your proactive officers making lots of arrests and saying you're doing something wrong. And nobody wants to be flagged by the early warning system. So it's like, oh, I need to be making fewer arrests so I have fewer uses yeah, of force. Yeah, what a terrible system. And then that yeah. impacts everybody's public safety because then crime picks up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you want to incentivize. When the officers do the right thing, you want to incentivize that behavior, not disincentivize it. Mm-hmm. And that's what early warning systems do. Okay, so the data is fantastic. I love what you're doing because it justifies the professionals in the profession. Is that the right way to do it? But anyways, it what it say it. What it does for me is it, 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 it's comforting to know that somebody's paying attention to the data to try to correct the narrative, if you will, and inform people. Because I'm looking at the community when I have these conversations or I just read comments and whatnot. They seem a bit uninformed to a degree of what really occurs. And I think you're, you're leading the way. So how does your company, in comparison to what was in the news a couple of weeks ago, a software company that came in to analyze body-worn video on an officer f- with our fi- artificial intelligence and then compare that data and then project a score to the community that would basically rate the officer's professionalism. Seems very subjective. Where Seattle, and this company was called Trulio, Seattle signed a contract with this company without letting their employees know Um where they were analyzing the body-worn video footage when I, if I used it on head on me, Officer Solon connecting with Mr. Scales, I have to let you know that I'm using, that you're being audio and video recorded. Little did I know at the time that there was this third-party entity that was analyzing my words when I talked to you to flag it for potential problems, whether it's sarcasm, whether I was rude, whether I used racial tones. They were learning from my words, and then they would rate me, unbeknownst to me, whether or not I was professional. How do you how do you compare with that reality? Because we're seeing AI come into the more of a conversation. Does that impact your ability to get your job done? Or is it something that can work? Yeah, so so the the I think both the strength and what one of the things that people criticize our system for is that everything in our system is based on data from the officer's narrative statements. So we take what the officer said. Um, which your officers have to sign under penalty of perjury, mm-hmm. you know, all your statements, yeah. and they can be used in evi- Legal evidence document. in courts, right? So, so it's generally pretty reliable information. Um, and if it's not, then a supervisor should flag that, right, when, you're, sure. when it's being reviewed. So, so, so we're looking at things from, a, from an objectively reasonable officer standard, which is what the courts do. Mm-hmm. And so we take that, that data. We're not, we're not making any... Um, subjective leaps, uh, you know, statements. We're not saying, and and even though we've come up with these algorithms, all they do is provide you with a relative risk score. We're not saying, you know, a a low justification score doesn't mean the force is unjustified. Um, Just as a high force factor score doesn't mean it's excessive. It just means that it's a higher risk based on this fact pattern to be found to be either unjustified or excessive. That's different than us coming in and saying, all right, we've reviewed your cases and we think that these these are the ones that are bad. And you should, our, our system doesn't change anything that the, the department's already doing with its own individual review of incidents. So I think that's, it's we're, we're trying not to introduce any subjectivity into Got this. Got it, it seems very objective yeah. and based, the new term would be. Okay, so fantastic work you're doing. Now let's go into how a lot of this conversation is impacting not only just Seattle, but now statewide politics. 
particularly a bill that's in Olympia. It's House Bill 1445, which on its face looks like an absolute catastrophe. If you wouldn't mind, because you posted this, um, you wrote an article, a post in your LinkedIn. We'll have a link in the description for people. And this was done four days ago. Walk us through, please, how detrimental House Bill 1445 is. So, so I'm, I'm not one to sort of follow or believe in conspiracy theories, but this is, this is a conspiracy. Okay. And, and, and I have, I have done a number of public records over the last year or so. And so this is a conspiracy that involves the department of justice, the legislature, policing activists, and it's led by the attorney general's office, the state attorney general's office. So attorney general, Bob Ferguson. Correct. And what is happening is that uh, the attorney general is trying to uh, appease his political supporters and is trying to assert more uh, law enforcement authority himself as well as his oversight and control of local law enforcement agencies. And um, this started with a bill in 2021, Senate Bill 5259, which created a statewide use of force data collection program. And I was brought in by legislators into legislative process along with Seattle University. And they basically crafted a, um, a bill on use of force data collection that was modeled on a lot of the recommendations that we provided. And the legislature said, We're, you're going to have a competitive bidding process where any university in Washington state can apply. And so we were working with Seattle University to bid on this $15 million project. So the attorney general's office uh, uh, submitted a fiscal note of what they were going to do, which followed the legislation. And then they threw out the fiscal note once the legislation was passed. And then they, they did their own thing. So they completely rewrote the legislation. They rigged the public procurement process. After the legislation was passed. Correct. So they rigged the public procurement process so that their client, which they have a conflict of interest with, Washington State University, will get this project. Uh, we, were, we were essentially disqualified. Uh, by the attorney general's office because they rewrote the project to make us ineligible. Um, and they wouldn't uh, listen to any of our complaints or concerns. They, the, the Seattle University asked for an extra 60 days um, because... Uh, well, that uh, part right there doesn't seem conspiracy. It seems like fact. Well, yeah. I mean, I, 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 mo- a lot of people listening to me would say this is a conspiracy, but it is based on what actual happened. Right. And Keep and, going because that's yeah, compelling. And... and, and I mean, it, 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 we could do a whole show on, on this, but the, 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 in my public records request, almost everything that I get from the Attorney General's office on this public procurement process, which everything's supposed to be public record, is redacted by the Attorney General's office. They gave me one unredacted document by mistake um, that shows that one of the recommendations made by their advisory group um, which I expressed concerns about, their own attorney said it was illegal. And this is a, a project to collect basically cell phone camera video from the public. By the, the university is supposed to collect cell phone video camera of all police interactions that they Holy can find. Cow. And then they're supposed to compare those videos with police reports and see if the officers are telling the truth. So, so like a big branch of accountability. Yeah, for a university, this is a data. This had nothing to do with the legislation. This is something the attorney general added into the project um, that will violate privacy laws. I mean, what do you do with, with sexual assault victims, with juveniles that are in these videos, et cetera, et cetera? So their own attorneys 
told the attorney general that this was illegal and that this would result in liability and blowback on the attorney general's office and the university. I got that email. Holy that they cow. sent to me by Accidentally mistake. Gave it to you. They, they did not redact it. And, and so I sent it back to them in my, in one of my responses and said, look, you can't, you can't put this recommendation into the RFP the request for proposals because it's illegal and your own attorneys say it's illegal. Once they, once the powers that be at the AG's office realized I had this document, they sent me an email and they said, uh, we accidentally sent you this document, this attorney client privilege. You need to destroy this document, not share it with anybody and tell us when you've complied. And I'm like, uh, no, uh, this is public record. It's my document. It's my property. You don't, you don't get to tell me to destroy oh, my, that's a huge development. Yeah. And so, and not only that, but the attorney general approved that recommendation and it's in the RFP. So, so because the recommendation came from the activist groups and from Washington. And so, so wanted to keep that, that there for them. So, so what's happened with this project and we haven't gotten to 1445 yet, but basically they're in the final stages of selecting Washington state university was the only bidder because they rigged it so that, and Washington State University is the attorney general's client. So they have a conflict of interest. You can't both yeah. evaluate their proposal and yeah. <laughs> represent them. So they're on both sides, Two of, state the, they're on both sides of the yeah. negotiation table, the attorney general's office is. So they will get the project and, and it's illegal. And I'm looking at different legal challenges to the RFP process. There are also criminal violations involved because I have got documents showing that WSU was in com direct communication with the AG's office. Um, about the RFP, which is a gross misdemeanor. Um, there's also involvement from the new Office of Independent Investigations. They were working with a private company that was submitting a bid on this, giving them insider information through the Attorney General, which is their lawyer. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a cluster. And, and so, so that leads to uh, 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 House Bill 1445, which was introduced, which passed out of, out of committee? Uh, committee, and it's in, it's in House rules, and it's more or less along party lines. But this bill would give the Attorney General's office the authority to conduct pattern or practice investigations of any county or local law enforcement agency and enter into consent decrees. And in their fiscal note, the Attorney General said, if this bill passes, we'll be getting hundreds of complaints a year. We're going to launch eight investigations a year and enter into two consent decrees a year. And so they've already prejudged, just like the U.S. DOJ. And there's in, in the legislation... There's uh, a section about that the attorney general has to consult with the U.S. Department of Justice and make sure that they don't step on their toes. Um, so, so here's what's going to happen. So, well, so, so, so the, the, the representative, Drew Hansen, who's one of my representatives who, who introduced this bill as a prime sponsor, he, he wrote a floor amendment that if this gets out of committee, it, it, so the floor amendment exempts Washington State University, university, state university police departments, and all state law enforcement agencies from investigation. No way. <laughs> so then, so, okay, so then the reality of that, if this catastrophe passes, then it would be every other local law enforcement jurisdiction statewide. And if you're a smaller agency and say you have a problematic force that's optically on its face looks pretty bad, then potentially, due to this oversight or consent degree from the state, 
for lack of a better way of putting it, that could make that city insolvent. Absolutely. Right? So here, here's what I here I can tell you what's going to happen. So so there are no standards. So so Bob Ferguson can choose whoever he wants to to investigate. So I can tell you the first agency that he will investigate is the Pierce County Sheriff's Office. Oh, because Troyer. Because he tried to prosecute. Because he failed with failed, Troyer. Failed to, so that's, that's, that's number one. I guarantee you that will be the first agency that's investigated by the Attorney General. There are no standards, right? He can, he can make whatever, he can do whatever he wants. And, and, and he's getting $2 million a year Holy from God. the state legislature specifically to do this. So he's going to investigate uh, he says up to eight agencies a year and enter into two consent decrees a year, whether they need it or not. It will be political. It will be, he, he's going to go where he's going to get votes, which is King County. So he's going to go after the suburban King County agencies, my guess. Uh, and he'll probably go after Tacoma PD because the Tacoma mayor doesn't like her police department. Um, so he'll probably be invited in there. But it's, it's going to be 100% political. So then what's the end game for that? Well, here's what I think is going to happen. See, I think that they haven't, they haven't thought through what they're thinking of is how can I get more power, more money um, uh, to advance my political and aspirations? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's as far as it goes. But what I think will happen is, is sort of what you said, which is, so let's say that, let's say that, uh, so, so I live on Bainbridge Island. So I have, uh, we have, a, a, and because I was on the city council, I know what the budget is and everything else. So, so, the, so there's about a 20 person law enforcement agency. Good agency. Yeah. It's a great agency. And uh, $5 million a year budget. So let's say that, that we have some activists on Bainbridge Island that complain to the attorney general. He launches an investigation. He finds some problems, and he says, all right, uh, 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 we're going to do a consent decree. Um, and not only that, the le- here's the crazy thing about the legislation. The legislation gives the attorney general the authority to recoup the costs of his own investigations from the local government. So Which he- could make them... Right. So if he spends six hundred thousand dollars on investigating Bainbridge Island, then he could turn around and say, "Bainbridge Island, you have to pay for my investigation that I just did of you. Plus, I want you to hire a monitor at four hundred thousand dollars a year. I want you to implement all these reforms, all these systems." So, so likely, my my guess is that your average investigation and consent decree will at least double a department's budget, Uh, and so. The city council and the mayor will say, all right, it's not worth it to have our own police department. Yeah. It's too expensive. We cannot afford it. We cannot take away all these other community services and give it to the police. So we will dissolve our police department oh, and we will contract God. with the county sheriff. Yep. That's what's going to happen. But and ultimately, it, at the end of the day, that county sheriff could be investigated as well. Oh, absolutely. The, the difference is that county sheriffs are... Elected. elected. Well, not in King County anymore. Well, not in King County, right? King County's King County's screwed. Uh, the Attorney General can can, can do that, but at least they have a little more leverage, and it's going to be a little harder. That's why that's why almost no federal consent decrees involve a sheriff. I think there's only two. So who who's supporting? I mean, I, it's all part of the public record. I would ask you, like, who right now is supporting this horrific bill? Well, what's interesting is is who's op- opposing it is Association of Washington Cities. So. All, all cities, it's mayors, reasonable. mayors, city yeah, managers, they know city what council, happen. they know, they know what's going to happen. So, so they oppose it. WASPIC, Washington Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs opposes it. WACOPs opposes mm-hmm. it. Fraternal Order of Police supports it. They're supporting it. They're supporting it. 
And, and they're supporting it, and the Washington Coalition for Police Accountability supports it, and there's, a, there's a, like a trial lawyers group that will, because this is going to, this is just going to open the floodgates to lawsuits, because as soon as your department's identified as having a pattern or practice of, of something, then everybody's going to sue you for everything they can. Of course they are. Um, so it will be, it will be the end of local law enforcement, eventually a transfer to the sheriffs. But, you know, but, but the other thing is, is that the state patrol, uh, university police departments are immune. Exempt. From, <laughs> exempt. exempt from so the state's exempting themselves right. from investigation. And, and we just had this, uh, just last year, a terrible incident at Washington state university police department where three members of the command staff, including the police chief resigned for covering up a sexual misconduct complaint from one of their sergeants who was having sex in a patrol car on duty for a long time, Jeez, and, and they're exempt. They cannot be investigated by the attorney general. That's a problem. It is. Well, I would say that people that are supporting this have skin in the game, meaning that they're going to get something out of it. Right? Well, Whether it's in selling insurance to protect whatever whoever cop belongs to your organization, that's what I've heard. Right? That, that shows you they're there, there. That's a political game. They're in bed with the activists who continue continuing the hate against policing. Because right? they have an agenda, and then the opposite, they, they, those activists want to absolve policing. Well, abolitionists. There's also a lot of there are a lot of state legislatures that would love to be attorney general, and I think there's a lot of and, oh, and of course yeah. the attorney general has aspirations for higher office, and and so that that's what's driving all of this. So I would say if you're uh, for, on two fronts, I'll start with this first. If you're a copper out there, try to understand why your organization is supporting or opposing this figure out where you land on this but more importantly bob what is what should what should we do about this what should the community do about this horrific bill coming down the pipe but on its face appears it might have steam to pass i think it will i think it will pass primarily because there's there's i mean the legislature doesn't care what cities think they don't care what law enforcement things and and the fop is giving them sort of the political cover they can say we've got law enforcement support for this bill well i'm telling you what there's not the reasonable law enforcement people i tell you that right now yeah, I, I i do not understand it and and uh uh especially when you've got waspic and wacops opposing it sure. so what is it about Was- yeah waspic again is a washington state sheriffs and police chiefs right yeah but the uh the that's just, I, I, I just had a, 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 I was going to say something. Well, I think you're just so like <laughs> aghast at this possibility of this thing passing. It's I hard am, to articulate I it. I am. And, and oh, oh, you asked me, you asked me, what can we, what can we do? What can people do what about What can people this? do? What's the call right. to action? Right. I have tried everything I can think of. I've been to the state auditor's office about this, this fiasco with the public procurement process on the, and this is a misappropriation of $15 million in funding by the attorney general's office. Stated auditor's office said, oh, we only investigate fraud and this isn't fraud. I went to the executive ethics board that is supposed to be enforcing ethics for all state employees and elected officials. They said, uh, and I brought them evidence public record, evidence mm-hmm. of, of, of ethical violations and, and, and criminal violations. And their response to me was, this is a personnel issue, go talk to this person's supervisor. The Executive Ethics Board is staffed by the State Attorney General's Office. Oh, my God. 
Um, I went to, I filed a complaint with the uh, Office of Independent Investigations. This is another whole piece, right? This new office is being set up, and they are in cahoots with the Attorney General's office. And the Attorney General's office also wants to have, there's another bill that will give them the authority to prosecute individual officers that are referred to of them course. by the Office of Independent of Investigation. This is this is a concerted effort. effort. And if it succeeds, it will... Well, I'm telling you, it's already yeah. succeeding. I'm talking about just the overall activist movement to just basically cancel policing and rewrite it to their own script. There's a reason why this agency is down almost 600 bodies. There's a reason why this state alone of all law enforcement numbers per, per population is one of the lowest in the union, in the republic. This is a serious problem. And I'm extremely worried about our communities across the state in terms of the public safety conversation. They're going to continue to devolve into criminality and lawlessness. That's not hyperbolic. That's the reality. I, I 100% agree. And that, that's what frustrates me so much is that, again, we all want the same thing, right? Supposedly. We all want better public safety, better policing, constitutional policing. All cops more, do as well. Everybody wants the yeah. same thing. This is what what's happening in Olympia is the will we'll take us in the opposite direction. And what that illustrates to me, that taking us into this opposite direction is this circle of activist movement based on broadly a false narrative about policing in general, not taking into the data component that you do such a great job with, discounting that, discounting you, because... What it well, here's here's another thing that just it boggles my mind. So so you know, there's this police pursuit bill, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's really hard, as you know, for for officers to pursue any fleeing criminal yeah. suspect because they've made it that way. The activists have. That's right. And so 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 two years ago, they passed the bill regulating pursuits. Now they want to sort of lessen, make it a little bit easier. They got to reform the reform. Reform the reform. They they already did that a number of reforms that went too far, but now they're trying to do the pursuit, uh, police pursuit bill. So one of the one of the um, uh, Washington uh, Coalition for Police Accountability activists, who's a former uh, University of Washington professor, um, did her analysis that she posted online and claimed that there was a since the bill was was uh, uh, enacted, there was a seventy three percent reduction in in fatalities related to pursuits, and most of those fatalities were innocent bystanders and passengers. So. I, she got that data from a crowdsourced website called Fatal Encounters. And I know that database really well, and I know that that data is not accurate, and it's not, it was designed for officer-involved shootings. So, so I thought, well, so I, I had no, no, no involvement in the bill. I wasn't lobbying for or against or anything else, but I saw this, this report, and I'm like, that isn't right. So I went to, I just sent an email to, we have a Washington Traffic Safety Commission. Oh, yeah. And their job is to collect data on traffic safety and all fatalities. And so I wrote to them and I said, hey, do you guys have data on fatalities related to police pursuits? And they said, yeah. And I said, could you send it to me? Sure. So they have, they're an $11 million organization that's funded by the state. The chair of the the commission is the governor. You have the secretary of transportation, secretary of health, the Washington State Patrol chief on the commission. It's the official data source for fatality, traffic fatalities. And the data that I got from the Traffic Safety Commission was completely different from the data that the activists were providing and shows that there's absolutely no difference in fatalities before and after the bill. I sent that to the legislature and, and I was asked by one legislator to testify at a hearing. They didn't call on me. 
So I didn't get to testify, so I sent in my, my written testimony. Mm-hmm. Legislature completely ignored it, and they continued to use this, this false data that was just made up by an activist. Because it continues because the it, false narrative. It, 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 oh, we're saving. And the, and the narrative that, that, that legislators are using is this bill saves lives. I can tell you right now that fatalities across the state, excluding police pursuits, is astronomical. Traffic, traffic fatalities in general has skyrocketed, skyrocketed because there's no, there's no accountability. No, nobody stops. Why yep. would anybody stop? If, the only people who would stop are law-abiding citizens. All right, so... You know, we're, we're closing this out. We're over an hour. I mean, this is, you are fascinating. You're awesome. Um, what can we do? We have to, I would suggest, but I want you to maybe agree or disagree. Connect with your local legislature. Yeah. And and hammer these bills and advocate on behalf of reason and moderate approaches. This has gone way too far, way too far. Unfortunately, I don't. I don't think that's going to make any difference because because legislators are not motivated by data. They're not motivated by it's emotion. Uh, their constituents and what they want. Uh, they're motivated by their own political aspirations and what the most vocal advocates are saying. So I've come to the conclusion that you know my involvement is, in this is probably going to be litigation. Because uh, I think that's the only way. Maybe that's the only recourse. Because here. there's there's no there's no accountability. The state attorney general has zero accountability so then, okay. to anyone. So maybe then the on top of doing what's basic, which is getting in touch with your representative or senator. Okay, but how can they help you? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be have to be. You're going to need some resources to start suing people, right? You're going to need some money. So how can we help you? Yeah, so I've already started sort of networking uh, amongst the the legal community, and and I haven't, uh, you know, I, I I currently have one public records lawsuit pending against WSU. There will be another one against the attorney general's office soon. Um, that the you know I haven't really, I mean, I sort of have a, a full time job and a business to run, so mm-hmm. so I haven't uh, yet gotten organized enough, but I have spent. A lot of time and effort to collect the evidence and and to to I know what the legal arguments are. It's it's basically you know putting it together. So I don't have like a a GoFundMe account, but definitely if you're interested in this issue and you would like to support it, let me know and then I will definitely. Plug Where you should in. they go? Where can people hear? So from you? so the uh, the best way to contact me is uh, uh, my email address at Bob. Bob at policestrategies.com and our website is policestrategies.com. Okay. And we'll put a link in the description for all that. And you okay with us putting your email? Absolutely. Okay. So folks, I mean, this is a red alert situation. Um, This isn't uh, being dramatic. I mean, we're we're staring at a complete collapse of public safety here. If these activists continue to influence our elected leaders to do their bidding, evidence is here in the city of Seattle where public safety is devolving. We're, not getting enough officers to fill the ranks of people leaving comes down to um, quality of work, working conditions, just being politically supported and being targeted, not looking at the data. I mean, all this stuff is intertwined. Politics is local, but now it's statewide. And this crisis continues and it's expanding across the entire nation. You got to get involved. You got to wake up here. I, I want to thank you so much, Bob. I mean, you, you're coming across as really relevant reasonable, moderate. This doesn't seem to be bipartisan at all. It, it just seems to be one mission. The mission is to just rescue this state from a public safety collapse and a cabal, what it appears to be. 
a money cabal. So I want to thank you for your leadership. Um, and more, more importantly, for taking the time here. Um, we're going to do continue to do our end here in the city of Seattle to try to advocate for the coppers and be reasonable about it, which we are, and push back against these anti-police activists that continue to degrade public safety impacting you. So without further ado, please check out Bob. Links in the description. Thanks again, man, and hopefully we can stop these drastic bills. And if you're a copper out there, question as to who your representation is, maybe ask some hard-hitting questions. Until that time, keep standing up for a reality, moderate approach, and together maybe then we can all hold the line. Thanks a lot.